Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcast. I'm Dr. Jamie Newman, a hospitalist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and this is the second episode of a special three-part series on troponins. Today we're going to dig a little deeper into the new assay and its impact on emergency medicine. Healthcare providers looking to claim CME credit for listening to this series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash troponinpc and register. With me today is Dr. Casey Clemens. Dr. Clemens is an emergency physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Welcome, Dr. Clemens. So, Dr. Clemens, what's so different about this new test? So, uh, thanks for the introduction. I really appreciate it. Uh, This is uh, a completely different way of thinking about troponins, I think, than we've thought about previously. Uh, As you talked about with Dr. Jaffe, uh, it's detected differently in the blood, and because we can measure this down to a parts per billion level or nanograms per liter, uh, we can detect very small changes, and we have to know what we're going to do with those results. And so because we're talking about that, and because lots of different illness states can affect the heart and the myocardium, uh, it's going to affect drastically how these results uh, are taken into context within the clinical picture. In fact, the whole way that we think about this needs to change. Uh, Because the results are are higher sensitivity um, and we're going to see these small changes, I don't think that we can necessarily consider a positive or a negative result anymore. This is something that's going to be based on a a continuum of measurement within the clinical situation. So this test is new in the United States, but it's been used in Europe for quite some time. What have we learned from them? Well, when we started to look at how to implement this, um, we, we did start with the European Society for Cardiology and their several years of sort of work in Europe on this. The concern is is that um, based on their recommended guideline evaluation, there's still a significant miss rate, and there's not the same tolerance for that risk in a United States-based practice. So we looked at uh, other implementation strategies and comparisons as well as validations of those European guidelines to help create a pathway that we think uh, can implement this safely in order to uh, both improve our recognition of cardiac illness that we need to intervene on, as well as um, make sure that uh, we're not overburdening the healthcare system. Well, that makes total sense. What are the benefits of using this new test compared to the previous generation troponin? Well, it's called high sensitivity, and it's more highly sensitive. And so uh, this will detect some small percentage of patients that we may have missed or not been able to detect as early in their illness state with the previous generation of testing. We will rule in some of those people that had been missed, though I suspect that will be a pretty small number. The real benefit to us is going to be related to patient throughput. We're going to be able to rule out significant cardiac injury much more quickly um, than in our our previous generation, Uh, and hopefully that will translate to both uh, improved patient flow in the emergency department and decreased downstream utilization within the hospital, whether that's observation units or inpatient units. So that sounds great. In my experience, nothing good comes without a downside. So what are the potential problems using the new test? Uh, it's certainly going to be a little bit more of a tax on the head for the, uh, for the clinician. It, interpretation of this is, is difficult. Um, as I said, there's going to be probably most hospital-based patients who will return with an indeterminate or intermediate level on this, and, and we can certainly talk more about that. 
The other part that will add a complicating factor for us is that uh, if you have an elevated level, even if it is ruled out to be an acute injury, this still has some amount of risk in an ongoing way for the patient, and we're going to need to figure out how to incorporate that into our current risk stratification strategies. Uh, and that's not exactly clear how to do it. So for example, uh, at this time we uh, tend to use a modified heart pathway, uh, which to uh, look at ongoing risk downstream. Um, it's unclear with an intermediate result and a low-risk heart pathway, what should our follow-up plan be for that patient? So we're going to have to think about this carefully, and while that may not affect acute or emergent care, it could certainly affect downstream care. We'll need to make sure that we've engaged outpatient providers as well as patients in their own care to help follow up on those, uh, those values. So we talked about this a bit in the first episode, but as this is a whole new set of values that are in uh, whole numbers versus uh, fractions. Can you run through with us what values we'll be using for cutoffs and what the deltas or changes between uh, timeframes mean? Absolutely. And I, I think that keeping this in a clinical scenario is also important. And so as we talk through this, I'd like to say what we currently do and then maybe what we're moving towards as we see as an ideal use of this test. Sounds like a good plan. So with the current fourth generation or sort of not high sensitivity troponin, oftentimes we'll assess the patient for their clinical presentation, we'll get an electrocardiogram, uh, and if we're concerned about acute coronary syndrome, we'll order a biomarker panel, which right now has a zero, three, and six hour blood draw to assess for cardiac injury. That's a significant amount of time between those tests, particularly for someone that you may be concerned is actually having ongoing symptoms, or uh, you're concerned they're actually injuring their heart muscle. I, I, it's, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but we used to say, you know, time is heart or time mm -hmm. is brain for, for stroke. And so uh, with this, we would oftentimes act on the first value that we got back. And so if there was a detectable level of the not so high sensitivity troponin, we would oftentimes pursue a pathway into cardiac care. We'd employ cardiology. We may admit them to cardiology if we were concerned, saying that we thought that this represented uh, a myocardial infarction. And so with the new high sensitivity test, we can't really do that because we know that most patients that present to our emergency department, and we've tested over 1,500 of them now with this new assay, are going to have an elevated level of some kind. Now, elevated doesn't mean a positive test. It doesn't mean that they're having an acute cardiac injury. It means that we can detect it in their blood because it's such a sensitive assay. And so uh, in this new test environment, we probably don't recommend acting on that initial value in the absence of significant ECG changes or a clinical scenario where we're very highly suspicious of ongoing cardiac injury. In that case, it's gonna have to need a delta. And a delta is when you get that second test to see if there's a significant change from the first. Uh, in this case, that delta will only have to be at two hours, which will be a significant improvement over actually waiting to three and in a significant percentage of patients, six hours in our current generation of tests. We know that over 75% of our patients are going to be able to rule out in that first two hour level and we'll be able to say, no, your heart is not currently being injured. Uh, at that point. There are some small percentage of patients, we think it's less than 10%, where 
which won't have either a positive delta, meaning greater than 10 in two hours, or a negative delta of less than three in two hours, but we'll have that intermediate range of four to nine. And when that happens, we are gonna have to default to a further out test. Right now, that's gonna be probably six hours, similar to the previous version. But again, that's a very small minority of patients. So what are we gonna do specifically with these intermediate value patients, even though it's a small percentage we have to have a plan in that regard. Absolutely. So um, I think that there's two important points to that. One is, is that intermediate value is going to have a delta associated with it. And that delta is really what we're going to hang our hat on for cardiac injury. And so we feel pretty confident that within two hours, we'll be able to say yes or no to acute cardiac injury for the majority of patients. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have no risk moving forward. We haven't ruled out unstable angina, for example, and they may require further assessment, including observation or testing later. Also, that small, small percentage that we talked about that's going to require the six-hour level will likely need to be observed at some point, and where that is um, uh, will depend on the practice environment. In Rochester, we're probably going to use our observation unit for that, um, and different practices may have to do that in different places. So, uh, for, as someone who, who spends their time in the emergency department, how do you think that's going to impact your flow through the emergency room for all those patients waiting in the emergency room, <laughs> uh, waiting room to be seen? Well, we, we hope it's going to help patient flow. That zero to two hour rules out almost everybody is a huge benefit because right now the vast majority of patients are getting that six hour assessment. And this has been looked at in, in uh, multiple research studies in the past. Um, we've been able to show that this drastically decreases uh, length of stay in some practices when it's implemented intelligently. And we hope that uh, we're working on doing that. And uh, this is a part of that effort. So do you think more patients are going to end up admitted to the hospital? Hopefully not many. Because it is a more sensitive assay, there is some incremental increase that we think uh, will find a heart attack or a myocardial infarction in uh, folks that we may have been missing before. But I uh, think that on traditional numbers, our miss rate certainly nationally is probably less than 2%. Uh, and here, I think, is quite a bit less than 1%. So I don't think that that's going to be a significant number of patients. Um, uh, also, I think that it's going to be important to take any elevations or positive deltas, even including uh, myocardial injury, into a clinical context. We need to be treating the underlying cause of this. We're not looking at just saying, well, the heart is injured, this is a cardiology problem. These levels will be elevated, for example, in sepsis, including with acute myocardial injury as an effect of the sepsis. These will be elevated in um, strokes or head bleeds because of this idea of a brain-heart axis. Uh, and uh, what we need to do is treat the underlying cause, not necessarily um, focus just on the heart alone. A cardiologist isn't going to help uh, for your brain bleed. You need some, something else at that point. Well, I hope you're right as a hospitalist that it won't lead to more admissions. Um, so what do you think uh, the impact is going to be on observation units? Yeah, this is up for debate. Uh, I ask some of my colleagues and I get different answers. Personally, I think that we actually may decrease observation utilization because if we can uh, rule out injury more quickly, there is a set of patients which will be low or low moderate risk which can follow up and we can do that within just a couple of hours hopefully with this new test. There are certainly folks that will require an observation period for assessment of things like unstable angina, but I think we'll, I think we'll actually decrease that uh, a little bit. 
Um, uh, we will have to en uh, engage, as I said, the hospital in the cardiology practice in an ongoing way to make sure that we're using our resources appropriately. So you mentioned cardiology. How are we going to decide which patient needs to see be seen by a cardiologist? Obviously, not every patient with an elevated troponin value is going to need a cardiology consult. Exactly. And this gets right back to the idea of we need to treat patients based on what we believe their underlying cause of their abnormalities are, especially with this new test. And so patients need to see a cardiologist if they have a primary cardiac cause of their issue. If somebody's having acute coronary syndrome because they have a coronary blockage, they need a cardiologist to help with that. If somebody's having an ongoing arrhythmia or recurrent arrhythmia that's causing some injury to the myocardium, they don't need to be rushed to the cath lab and they don't need ischemic care, but they need a cardiologist to help manage that arrhythmia. There are a lot of patients that we're going to see in the hospital who are going to have these elevations from non-cardiac causes. We already mentioned things like sepsis and stroke, and individual clinicians are going to have to take these results uh, and put them into the clinical context in an ongoing way, uh, and we're going to have to rely on them to do that. So that's it's very interesting, and I'm going to ask one last question with the time we have left, and it has to do with assessing these patients. You know, the we don't want to make our decisions based on a lab test only. And troponin is high sensitivity. It's a great test. But we also have to look at the clinical scenario. And in assessing patients, is there a way we can stratify the risk and better understand uh, the impact to them clinically? Yeah, and this is one of those things that we hope that this test is going to be able to add to. But it is going to complicate a little bit. You know, for the last um, several months and years, we've used clinical tools to help gauge risk. Things like the heart pathway that I mentioned. Other practices use other scoring like TIMI or an EDAX score. When we look at how this new test performs in those tools, it's still up in the air a little bit. If you take the European Society for Cardiology zero and one hour rule out pathway, uh, when they looked at that with uh, the heart pathway, it, there wasn't enough data to say one way or another that this could safely uh, predict outcomes. However, when you do go out to the two-hour level, as we're proposing, uh, that's been shown to be effective in similar risk tools like EDAX and TIMI, and we suspect heart pathway is the same. Again, though, I do want to stress that there's a new piece of information here that we need to take into account, and that's the baseline level that we're measuring. Even if a delta is negative, if we're saying there's no acute myocardial injury here, if the baseline level is over about 35 nanograms per liter, that does infer some risk moving forwards for coronary events and even potentially all-cause mortality based on the Swedeheart study. And so we need to have a careful assessment of that risk based on our clinical impression, using these tools appropriately, and really involving the patient in their care and discussing with them what their own risk tolerance is. You know, a lot of this is going to come into effect downstream. What is our follow-up plan? What is this that we're going to do for, um, does this patient need functional testing sometime down the, down, uh, down the line? Um, but we don't know exactly how to incorporate that here. It's going to be a, a learning curve, and we'll have to study it very carefully. And that's certainly going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, thanks for joining us on Talking Troponins. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today for our second episode of Talking Troponins. Remember, providers looking to claim CME credit for listening to this three-part series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash troponinpc and register. 
For more podcasts like this one, go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Jamie Newman.